Welcome to the Investor Coaching Show, a podcast to help you get an insider's view of the financial world and escape common investment traps. We look at the financial news of the day and help you make sense of it so you can relax about money. And here's your host, Paul Winkler. And welcome. This is the Investor Coaching Show. And I'm Paul Winkler and he's Ira Work. Of course, last hour, we talked pretty significantly about what's been happening over in Israel all day long. If you happen to miss that, that's why you go to the podcast. Because the podcast, you can actually catch stuff that you missed here on the show. Because we're kind of like those ladies on Hee Haw. We don't go around repeating rumors, so you better listen close the first time. Factor ETFs. Wait, What? You never heard that? <laughs> what? So, so <laughs> Okay. So so hee haw. Yes. Really, really funny show. And, you know, they had these ladies and they would sing about, you know. I don't even remember the, the how the tune went. I can picture them, but I can't remember the But song. it was like, you know, we don't go around repeating rumors, so you better listen. Close the first time. <laughs> but anyway, that's yeah. wrong. Okay, factor ETFs. Gap. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> factor ETFs fail to deliver on their promised outsized return. So this is going to, I thought this would be a good educational moment on investing. Okay, so we are big on academic research here at the Investor Coaching Show. Um, the idea behind factors let me just explain you've got different factors of investing and eugene fama nobel prize 2013 came up with this idea of factor-based investing and he said you know there are three factors that drive 95 percent of returns you know we got large companies versus small companies first one was really stocks versus bonds how much do you have in stocks versus how much do you have in bonds and that's very time horizon driven so if we're looking at stocks versus bonds as we get older typically what we do is we start to add bonds to an investment portfolio because if stock markets go down i don't want to sell stocks when the market's low to get income you know i want to have some fixed income that i can draw income from to allow time to wait for the stock market to come back and then, you know, so that's that deal. Now, if I have a certain goal in mind, I'm going to put a kid through college in seven years. You know, I might put, let's say, 75% of the money in stocks, knowing that historically, I don't have a seven-year period, eight-year period somewhere in that neighborhood where I haven't made a return in, in that type of an asset mix. So, you know, hence, that is why this, that is the first thing you look at is time horizon, because how much income am I, gonna, am I going to take from the portfolio? If I'm taking a higher percentage out of the portfolio, I might not have as much inequities. Uh, I may, if I'm taking a lower income or I'm, let's say I'm younger and I'm more concerned about inflation and the devaluation of the dollar, I might have more equities because historically stocks protect against inflation, whereas fixed income bonds have not. So, you know, this idea of factor investing is pretty well established in investing circles. The problem is, Ira, have you ever heard how many different factors there are out there, investing factors that there are to choose from that are actually researched? Um, well, we're just five. Yeah, but you know how many there are? 
No. 400. 400. It's ridiculous. Yes. I mean, it is literally, it has become a way of gambling with people's investment portfolios. So just because somebody says that they're factor investing, don't necessarily look at it and go, oh, this is good. No, Uh, I think most people, when they hear that, they're like, you know what? I'm sure I can't understand it, so I'll just go with it. That's true, probably. I get As long as you understand it, Paul. Yeah. uh, yeah. Well, and and this is, you know, and what we look at are the factors that actually matter well what we're well, looking that's what's at important. are actually the factors that have premiums right exactly to investing so if we look at like for example large companies versus small companies we see that there has historically been a premium 83 percent of 20-year periods small companies have had a higher return than large companies now just remember 83 percent of 20-year periods which means by definition, 17%, 17% have not. Yes, thank you. Yes, exactly. So it's not a guarantee. So I'll come back to that. Then you've got value versus growth. Value stocks have outperformed growth stocks 95, 96% of 20 year periods. Value has done better, which means that 5% of the time, growth stocks have done better than value in five year periods. Now, if we look at shorter periods of time, 10 years perhaps, you're going to see it. it is more... It's, it's, it's closer to half and half, uh, and depending on the asset category, but you won't have as, as dominant an outperformance of the factor in a shorter period of time. You won't have where it does it so much that it's such a high percentage of the time that the, that the factor, the higher expected returning area, like small versus large or value versus growth, that you'll have that outperformance. So hence, that is the reason I object immediately to the headline of this article. Factor ETFs, now it doesn't say what factors, it does in the article, and some of the factors are not ones that you would use. Like you would use momentum, and then you do use that in the article, but you don't use it as a way of re- increasing return. The research doesn't bear out that you use that as a way of increasing return. You use it to reduce expenses. And I won't get into that because it's too nerdy. Uh, then you get into you know other factors that might be utilized in the investing process, which would be like, for example, well, they, they talk about the minimum volatility factor. Which is horse fetish. It's one of the 400, Ira. It's one of the 400 factors that that are out there that are not useful. But you probably have seen them before. There are minimum volatility funds out there. And and I've talked about it. I I hadn't seen, because they hadn't been out there when I talked about it here on the radio show, they hadn't been out there long enough for me to really tell you much about it other than to say probably the returns aren't going to be anything to brag about because if you reduce volatility, then you actually get rid of return too. Because mm-hmm. you know risk and return have always been related. Well, the, the verdict is in. The returns have been basically the same as bonds, if not a little bit less. So it, it did work out the way I would have expected. Then you have the, uh, the, you have the quality factor which is not a factor that you would use. Now, you would use a profitability factor. A profitability factor can be used to help make sure that the asset class is more pure for value. But, you know, again, too nerdy for this. But here's the point. Is number one, if you read that headline again, it says, the factor ETS failed to deliver their promised outsized returns. 
over what period of time? 10 years. <laughs> Which is ridiculous. 10 years is goofy. You, you may say, well, that's a long period of time, isn't it? No, it's not. You know, it says, although the theory is that these factors will generate superior performance over the long run, not one of the factor ETF grouping, groupings did so over the past decade. Well, that's misleading. That's misleading, too, because, well, Nick, this is actually where you and I were talking about before this on, on the show, before yeah. the show started. Yeah. Probably a good time to talk about it, huh? Let's do it. Okay. So um, Nick was, you know, he's just asking about 401k. And I said, well, you know, one of the things that you want, I want you to do is what we do for our clients is bring in the 401k choices that you have. And I'll take a look at what's going on. And he goes, oh, yeah. I said, how do I do that? And, and he and I were talking about his. And we went online and looked at it, looked at all the choices. Well, all of the money that he had in his 401k was in a Target 2050 fund, wasn't it? I think it was 20, 20, 2060 fund. Yeah, 2060. A target 2060 fund. So if you're retiring the year 2060, you put all your money in this particular fund. It was a Vanguard fund. And he, he laughed and is like, I didn't know it was there. And, and you know, I said, yeah, a lot of times what will happen, that will be the default. They'll just stick it all in that. You know, and you know, it's funny because he's been producing here in the studio, in the Goodlessville studio, this show for, what, a year? About a year, yeah. And, you know, I've talked a lot about that, but he didn't even realize it, which is, you know, you think about that. How often do we not even pay any attention to what we're investing in our 401ks? We just so often we'll just say, what did they put me in? They put me in. Well, they must have put me in whatever was the best thing for me. And quite often you will find that is the case. The employer will default to that particular type of plan. And I've never been a fan of those things because what they do in those type, particular types of plans is they focus on like the Vanguard 2060 fund, they're going to put most of the money in two funds, which is a the total US stock fund, and then the total international stock fund. And those two funds are capitalization weighted, they're weighted more to the bigger companies. So you will find that companies like Apple and Microsoft and Amazon, and these huge companies, that's where most of your money is in these funds, you're not really well diversified in them because they're waiting based on that so if we if we look at that and say okay so what's what's wrong with that well the problem with that is that where do we expect lower returns large companies which is what we're talking about right here and growth companies we're in those two areas and in this particular article they're saying the factors have delivered have failed to deliver promised outsized returns in the past 10 years which is not the whole story what happens is you're Numbers can be skewed based on the time period that you select. During the Trump years, the returns were so high for that particular area of the market, growth, large growth, which is ironic because a lot of those companies would represent companies that weren't necessarily friendly to Trump, you know, like social media companies and, and technology companies and the huge companies. And, and it is ironic that, that that was the case, but it just so happened to be the case that when he was president, those companies dominated. Now, those companies, mind you, also dominated in the late 90s and throughout the 90s and throughout the year from the year 2000 through 2010 actually had negative returns. So you can go and, and go, wow, you know what? The factors didn't show up from 1990 through 1999. 
You know, so if you looked at those factors during that period of time, from 1990 to 1999, S&P 500 had a rate of return that was 2% higher per year than large value stocks did and 2% higher per year. Now, that may not seem like a lot, but but it's a pretty big deal when you look at that over time. It was 2% higher than the than large or small value stocks were over that same period of time, okay? So if you look at that and go, wow, okay, so in that particular instance, you literally had about a 25% difference in accumulation over that 10-year period if you look at the S&P 500. Now, over the next 10-year period, however, the S&P 500 lost 1% per year. So let's say you had $100,000, it shrunk to $91,000. Versus with large value stocks, it went up by 33%. With small value stocks, it would have gone up by 174%. So if you look at that and you said, hey, wow, you know what? The, the factors didn't work in that 10-year period. They had a 2% lower return per year. I'm say, so? <laughs> so, you know, well, you know, it didn't work. And you go, well, what are you going to do? I'm not going to invest in that anymore. Yeah, there you go. Kiss 174% growth goodbye and, and uh, become very well acquainted with a negative 9% return <laughs> over that same period of time. And over then, that's, that's using the period of time from 1990 through 1999 and then 2000 through 2009. And, and I'm using Fama French Large Value Research Index, Fama French Small Value Research Index, just for the record. You know, so these, if you look at the, and it's not a regular index, by the way. Uh, so don't look at that and say, oh, I just buy an index fund. No, those research indexes are very, very different. Uh, they're very well engineered. But anyway, um, if you, if you look at that and go, man, uh, that was probably, and then, then what he does in the article is he looks at correlations. And he says, you know, the, the correlations were high during that period of time. Well, correlations between stock asset categories are always high. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at the period of time over the last 10 years, you know, and he has correlations being above 80, uh, 0.8. Uh, so, you, you, what is, you know, so in essence, that's a high correlation. If you have a one correlation, it means things that move always with each other. If one goes up, the other goes up. Uh, but here's the, here's the problem. Even during the previous period of time that I was talking about, from the year 1990 through 1999, remember, and from 2000 through 2009, the correlations were still that high. Okay, so why does that matter? They were that high, but remember, one went down 9% and the other one went up by, like, what you know, what did I say, 180? Mm -hmm. Something like that? 174% return. 174% return. The correlations, if you look at that, don't tell you everything. Now, I talk a lot about correlation in investing, but mainly where I am focusing on correlation is stocks versus bonds. And that being, I want, I want a little bit of a negative correlation if I can get it. That's what I'm shooting for. And that's where you actually see a slight negative correlation where they move opposite each other because that is critical when you're physically in retirement. If stocks go down, I would like something that historically tends to go up or hold its value like bonds during that period of time. I don't want to be confusing. I know this is probably already confusing.
But here is the point. This article is written by a person that that's all they do is they focus on finance day in and day out. And you may read something like this and go, oh, this thing doesn't work anymore. Factor-based investing. And interestingly, when Nick and I had this conversation, we were talking about, he says, I've been investing in this particular fund for three years. And I said, oh, you're probably okay. Yep. I did, right? Yep, yep. That's exactly what I said. I said, you were probably okay. You said I lucked out. Then I said, you lucked out. You're lucked out. Yeah, exactly. I said, you lucked out. Because I thought during the past three years, large and growth did better. Boy, was I wrong. I went and actually looked at the numbers, and it was not the case. It was out of all the, the 12 different stock asset categories that you would hold, it was like number seven or number eight, which is really interesting. You know, I don't pay attention to every, you know, so if you look at every single year, it'll drive you crazy. But it was surprising. So in effect, what we're saying here, if you look at this, this person's saying 10 years, it didn't work. It worked in the last three years. Mm-hmm. It was just that one little period of time that was so skewed that it made the 10-year period skewed, if you know what I'm saying. But if you looked at the last three years, if you had made this decision seven, you know, seven years in, three years ago, and you said, well, the seven-year performance of the factors wasn't there, and then you bailed out, you would have messed yourself over, to be kind, <laughs> over the past three years, pretty significantly, too. Well, that's the reason, Paul, I use the example of marriage um, and, you know, um, issues that you have in marriage, you know, disagreements that you have in marriage. I never have disagreements. Uh, because you just say, yes, honey. <laughs> um, <laughs> if my wife's listening, she's like, shut up. <laughs> she's like, no, but, no, 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 You're not no. But, but the reality is, is that, you know, a lot of people, they give up, you know, because they have a few disagreements. And, you know, when I talk to my clients and it works really well in, in the workshops that we do, and we talk about, well, how long have you been married? And I'll say, you know, raise your hands if you're married. Keep them up if you're married one 10 years. Keep them up if you're married one 20 years. Keep them up if you're married one 30 years. And then, you know, someone's up, you know, keep them up if you're married more than 40 years. And there's usually a couple. And then you got some people cheering. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then, you know, so I'll just do the numbers of days that they're married and ask, you know, did you have any disagreements? And, oh, yeah. And. <laughs> You know, so you could have ended at any time, or how long did you court? And, oh, yeah, two years. Okay, 730 days. So, mm-hmm. and I'll just step through the number of days and say, you know, and I, and I do preface it and say, now, I don't want you to start digging up the disagreements, you know. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> knock down, drag out. And then I say, you know, how many children do you have? How many grandchildren do you have? How many memories do you have? Oh, my gosh, so many memories. Mm. More than disagreements? Oh, you're a lot more than disagreements. Why do they have more memories and disagreements? Because they stayed the course. Mm -hmm. They worked out the issues, Mm -hmm. you know, which is what I love about what we do. You know, when we say, look, our coaching really begins when the markets go down, because that's when you're going to actually put yourself in trouble. You're going to blow up your own portfolio. Mm -hmm. And that's where we talk more to our clients about what's really going on. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, three years, and, and I learned early on in, the, in my career, you know, March will be 40 years, mm. is that when I started in the business at 23, I looked at this and said, 
all right, well, retiring 65, that's a long-term career. And you're taught by these companies, you know, well, long-term, five to 10 years. And yeah. so I would say- well, You mean long-term, you know, they're working for the company or long-term is investing for that long? Long-term investing. Oh, okay, gotcha. You know, five okay. to 10 years. Five to 10 years long-term, yeah. And okay. most like, oh yeah, no, I'm a long-term investor. And I'm thinking, all right, well, good, I'll have them for my whole career. And I found out fairly soon that long-term for me meant, it really meant something very different for clients. Mm-hmm. Long-term for me went, you know, I'm gonna have you for the rest of my life. Long-term for clients was until the market went down. <laughs> <laughs> Get me out. Yeah. You know, it's like we talked about the time horizon on the portfolio being a six to nine year or a 10 year mm-hmm. for a market cycle based upon the mix of the portfolio and such. So investors, you know, they can get caught up on all kinds of things. And the Dalbar study shows how poorly investors do compared to the market. And that's an updated study every year mm-hmm. for a 30 year period. Mm-hmm. And it's because of the mistakes they make and the goofy things they chase. And, you know, the thing about the target date portfolios um, that I dislike the most mm-hmm. is that when you get to the periods, if you were to look at a, a, a target date portfolio now that's, let's call it a 2015, that's overly weighted in fixed income. Yes, and, that, that, that is absolutely true. You know, when, and when you compare that to the Trinity study, which shows that you should have, you know, if a successful portfolio with a 50-50. And I think the Trinity study is a little um, misguided as well. Yeah, and that has been updated as well. So so some of that, you know, the Bengen research, he's he's done a lot of really interesting things where he's tried different distribution rates. He's added value in more recent years. So I think they've gotten better in recent years. Right, but the initial Trinity study, which has been the hallmark of the industry yeah, and, itself. And, yeah, and then that was yeah, only a couple asset categories, right? But they, they did have, even just with a couple of asset categories, a long-term approach, which was good. Um, but it showed that with a 91% success ratio, you needed a minimum of 50% stock. Mm-hmm. And you get into those target date funds that are 2020, 2015, you know, they may have 40% stock in them. So you don't have enough equities, you don't have enough stock to outproduce inflation if you're taking a distribution. That has been, and that has been part of the problem that people have had and you know some of the criticism of those funds and it's interesting because some of the more recent research shows that actually holding more inequities as time goes on has been a benefit has has been a benefit you know when you actually increase the amount of equities which goes against what we would commonly think uh, in investing that you would actually increase that as you got older but you think about it if you're older and you really have a – if you look at it – uh, I'm not going to get into that. It would take too long to get into that. But, you know, in essence, what happens is just the research shows that because it, it would be a, probably an hour-long conversation if I got into some of the research. And we have commercials. And we so. got commercials. <laughs> <laughs> and we got other stuff to talk about. We got I got some other really interesting – time to dine, downsize in retirement. Uh, and it's not just stuff. So let's talk about that after we get back. It's really interesting. These people looking at what they want to downsize and what they needed to downsize as they got into retirement. A little bit of food for thought right after this. You're listening to the Investor Coaching Show. Thanks for tuning in to the Investor Coaching Podcast. 
Now, you may be one of these people that's been listening and realizing, wow, investing, there's a lot more to it than meets the eye and financial planning tax laws constantly changing and recognizing that maybe you might need some help in this area, but you don't want just anybody to help you out. So we have 10 offices in the Middle Tennessee area, and everything that we do is fee-only. We align our interests with your interests. So you can get an initial 15-minute phone call with any one of our offices just by going to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. That's it. Every one of the offices is run by somebody with 20 plus years experience. They're all degree planners. They all have academic backgrounds in investing, and you can get the help that you need. So if you want to set up a complimentary phone consultation, just go to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. And we look forward to seeing you soon. All right. Back here on the Investor Coaching Show, Paul Winkler, along with Ira Work. Okay, Ira. People getting ready to retire and they're thinking downsize and it's not just stuff. It was talking about, I got a couple conversations with people this week. Remember I was, I was walking, um, walking into a hardware store and it was, it was funny because I walk in this, like holding this, this part (laughs) and the guy, this guy's like in his seventies looks at me and goes, nope, nope. I laughed. It's so like, you know, as in, nope, we don't have that. You can't fix that thing that you're trying to fix, Paul. Uh, and uh, and he actually he led me straight to it. But then we got into conversation about retirement because this is his retirement job, uh, working at a hardware store. And he just loves it because he gets to talk to people. It's a really funny guy. I mean, it's really, really hilarious. Did you share what he did before he took this job? Uh, no. Okay. No, we didn't get into it, but he did talk about how the transition to retirement was difficult. And, you know, and then as this article says, the first year was the most difficult. And then he said, man, I can't do this. I got to get out and I got to hang out with people. I, I just can't do this. And they said that in here in the Wall Street Journal it says it can set the stage for how to fill the years ahead, both financially and psychologically. And the first lady they talked to, lady named Karen, she says in the kitchen, I, uh, I look up at my woven companions, 16 baskets atop the cabinets. I can relate to this. You know, having a lot of something that you've picked up, and she traveled for a living, so she had different things she picked up in, in different countries, mm-hmm. you know, a dozen countries. I get that. Uh, yeah, you think about it. You've got a lot of different things you pick up in different countries, and all of it is reminds you of that trip, right? Well, my wife has the travel wall. It's the okay. biggest wall okay. in our house. Okay. And she okay. likes to pick up a piece of artwork that is done by a local artist a local on the street. Interesting. You know, so she's already traveling before we met. Uh-huh. Uh, her first trip is, um, she calls it her big girl trip, was when she turned 50. Okay. She went with her, you know, a girlfriend from that she worked with okay. um, on a cruise in Europe. And she picked up from a few different countries, different pieces of art. And they're not very big, not very expensive. Um, but... She always had this dream that one day, you know, she would get married and be able to go back to those same places okay. with her husband. And we've gone back to mostly every country she went to. Um, so now it was like, well, now. How, how many countries is she, is she now? Um, I'm curious. We've probably been to probably 20 different countries. 
I'm such a homebody. <laughs> I, feel, I feel shame at this point. But you know, <laughs> I don't go anywhere. Well, but I, it's I mean, easy to do because you know well, you like, go, you're going on a cruise. Well, Mexico, I suppose, Canada. Uh, played music in the Netherlands, um, and that was about it, man. That's but you know, like when we did our northern Mediterranean cruise, we hit like six, six different countries. Uh huh. So, and but you know, and it's not like really exploring a lot of the country. It's getting a taste of the country. Yeah. And the only thing that bums me out about these cruises is they don't stamp our passports when we come in. So I don't have all the stamps for all the countries I've oh, been to, which is kind of a bummer. Yeah. But I would say, yeah, we've probably been to about twenty different countries. Wow, yeah, that's that's way more. I I feel I feel shame. Now this lady had forty forty or more baskets around the house, and she had all of this stuff stored in closets. And she started looking at it, going, "I got to get rid of some of this stuff." She says, "I want to winnow our possessions before there's a health crisis, and or a moving van at the door." And she says, "You know, I can do a lot of the hard work of organizing and categorizing and identify what I need long term." And then I can disperse what I want to pitch. And I think that's such a good point. I'll never forget my father one day. Uh, all of a sudden, there's a huge dumpster outside our house. And it was a small house. Like I said earlier, about 1,400 square feet tops is, is about what the size of this house was. But we had a lifetime worth of stuff because he was in the military and he traveled all over the around, all around the world. And he had stuff from the Azores, Philippines, and, you know, Lord knows. I mean, it was just everywhere. And he just had this dumpster. And all of a sudden, he just started pitching gone 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 and uh and he did it and it was interesting because he was getting rid of things and we were sitting there going are you sure you want to get rid of all of this stuff you know and he was like yep now he wanted to get rid of it because he knew someday he wasn't gonna be around and somebody else was gonna have to get rid of it for him and he wanted to spare us and, and that's exactly what my what my dad did which was he was such a planner uh, that's where I, I kind of got the the planning from because my dad would sit there and every month he would do his finances and I just watched him and I watched how he never worried about money. That's where the whole, you know, how we came up with the relax about money because he never worried about it because he always was on top of it. He always did planning. But uh, said this, uh, she says, it's partly psychological. As, as I age, she said, I find I have less room in my head to keep track of things and the sheer numbers of some possessions create a growing mental tension and i could totally relate to that having too much stuff it's it's kind of like ross perot said that one time when he was asked about having a lot of stuff and he goes you know you go down the yacht club he said bunch of unhappy people there you know why something broke that day mm -hmm. <laughs> it was such a good point and he says you know look at the things you know if you don't use it you don't need it old electronics orphaned cords lord, lord who doesn't have a bunch of orphaned cords to computers you don't even own anymore. Oh, I have tons of them. I know. Yeah, and I, 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 I say, well, I'm not going to get rid of them because maybe I'm going to need them one day. But <laughs> I know. I we mean, I have like ourselves the, into things. You know, the the cords that have like the 16 <laughs> little plugs in them. You know, those little ones. Oh that, yes, 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 and yes, yes, yes. They don't even use them anymore. Everything's now you know a USB, and now I have like so many USB, and now it's USB C. So it's like the tiny, tiny ones, and it's like, right. oh my god. I mean. It's all different. Things we use, use now, but we won't in a smaller space is another thing she brought up. You know, you might have like, you know, large house plants, extra chairs, piano, rusty wheelbarrow, uh, inventory. You know, we do an inventory now and label what we'll ditch when we move. Uh, and then she says, uh, stuff only I can handle. 
childhood report cards, recital programs. This is a tough one. Childhood report cards, recital programs, work accomplishments, letters, and such are a priority for thinning out now. And, you know, she says, you know, nobody else is going to make sense, sense of them. But, you know, her son actually goes, Mom, you have to save all that stuff. It's like your personal legacy. And she's, no, I don't really have to. And, you know, some people will just take pictures of those things and get rid of them. Yeah, well, okay, so my wife was, um, my first wife, was collecting all of this stuff for our, for our kids, stuff that she thought that they would want, you know, like, you know. So my daughter went through one of the bins, mm-hmm. garbage, 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 garbage. Mm-hmm. She took like three things out of probably like 30. Mm-hmm. These are the only thing that's important to me. <gasps> and one of the things that Ouch. really broke, you know, her mom's heart yeah. was she didn't care about the doll that her grandmother bought her. Oh, that's hard. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah, yeah so. it is. It's hard. Yeah, so uh, the idea is just looking at these types of things and really doing an inventory. It reminded me so much of the movie The Minimalists and where they were talking about if it doesn't make you absolutely happy when you're looking at it, you know, you just look at a, at a piece of clothing and it doesn't make you happy, get rid of it. You hadn't worn it in your get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard. But, you know, there are a lot of things that we do tend to collect. And this guy was talking about, like, a a classical guitar. And he says, you know, he's looking at this guitar going, one day I'm going to learn how to play this thing. And he's like, no, no, you're not. (laughs) You are not. And and all I could think of was the guitar that's in the corner of my room. (laughs) I have two of them. (laughs) I've got one, too, man. (laughs) Yeah, so I can't give this to you. Okay. No. (laughs) Nick's like, I'll take it. Nick's like, (laughs) Nick's like, I'll take it. Hey, this is Paul Winkler. Hope you enjoyed today's edition of the Investor Coaching Show. You want to learn more about what we do, go to our website, paulwinkler.com. You can watch some of the videos there, and if you're not already a client, you can set up a free initial consultation. Until next time, I'm Paul Winkler, reminding you that I believe that more educated investors are more confident investors, and confident investors are more successful investors. Have a great one. Advisory services offered through Paul Winkler, Inc., an SEC-registered investment advisor. The opinions voiced and information provided in this material are for general informational purposes only and not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what investments are appropriate for you, please consult with a financial advisor. Paul Winkler, Inc. does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your particular situation.